As many of you know by now, I am a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. I am not a total geek, but I am a Lord of the Rings nerd and a Middle-earth wanderer. And others have picked up on this. Uh, last week, I received a text from Ryan Swindle, our pastoral intern. And the text said, out of the blue, I get this text. The text says, finally figured it out. If you weren't a preacher, you'd be one of those people at the Renaissance Fair. <laughs> and my first thought was, this dude really gets me. And I just want to be clear that unlike Swindle, I am not a Renaissance man. I'm not as smart as he is, but I am a Renaissance Fair man, and I could do that. I want to say that as much as I love the Lord of the Rings story and the books and the movies and the action figures and the chess set and the posters and the beer glasses and the pipe weed, I must confess that there is one thing about the story that I do not like. And I've never liked it. And it is the songs. The songs. So many songs. Of course, some of them are okay, but most are quite odd even for poetry. The oddest ones sound silly and don't even rhyme. These are especially the songs of the eldest Tom Bombadil. For example, I'm rereading the trilogy and I survived the malice of the old forest and made it to the merry house of Tom Bombadil this past week. And as I was approaching his house, I knew what was going to happen. He was going to sing. And I was going to be faced with a decision either to listen to him sing or skip over his songs. And in case you're wondering, well, how bad could it be? Let me help you out. For those who don't know, Old Tom Bombadil was a merry old fellow, bright blue his jacket, and his boots are yellow. Merry dole, ring-a-ding-dillo. <laughs> and that's all you need to know. Now, what does this have to do with our sermon and Isaiah 49? Well, I have a sneaking suspicion that most of you probably feel about the prophets the way I feel about Tom Bombadil's songs. You love the story of the Bible. You love the characters. You love the drama, the action. You love all that you can find in the scripture, except you tend to skip over the songs of the prophets. Raise your hand if you would confess. I'm kidding. Don't do that. You might not skip over the songs of the psalmist because they're more prayer-like and you can relate to them. But when it comes to the songs of the prophets, you probably haven't spent a lot of time in Isaiah or Obadiah or many of the other prophets. But here's the problem. If you skip over their songs, you miss out on crucial details and images and symbols and pointers and clues that lead you to the story of Jesus Christ. So take, for example, the story before us today. It comes in the form of a song. What is the prophet singing about? Is he singing about himself or about someone else? And if about someone else, who could it possibly be? Well, this is a question that was once posed by an Ethiopian man, a royal treasurer, an educated man that was traveling across the desert between Jerusalem and Ethiopia. He was reading aloud the book of Isaiah. 
And he could not figure out whether the prophet was talking about himself or about someone else. And now, if we could just put a pause there for a moment and think about the devotion of this man reading the book of Isaiah, bouncing down the road in a chariot and reading it aloud for anyone around to hear. He couldn't figure out the mystery of these songs. He needed a guide to make sense of the music. And so the Lord graciously sent a minister out to him, and the minister comes to show him the way to be his guide through Isaiah. And the scripture says, here's how he did it. He got up in the chariot, and he opened his mouth, and beginning with the book of Isaiah, he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. How in the world could he do that? Well, since my purpose and goal are the same today, perhaps we will figure that out. Here is the good news of Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah. Listen to me and pay attention, you peoples, nearby and far away. Isaiah 49 is one of the songs of the servant of the Lord found at the heart of the book of Isaiah the prophet. The book is affectionately called by many scholars a fifth gospel because it tells us so much about the person and work of Christ. Not in a straightforward way like you would find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but in a more subtle and sublime way, more akin to what you would find in the Gospel of John. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was seen by Isaiah. That Isaiah said what he said because he saw the glory of Christ. The vision of that glory of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, is what moved Isaiah to sing songs about the servant of the Lord. Now, as we make our way through Isaiah 40 and try to find out the meaning of this song, there are three things I want you to keep in mind. That this song of the servant of the Lord tells us about the man, the mission, And the message of the servant of the Lord. We begin with the man. Who is this servant of the Lord about whom the prophet Isaiah is singing? Isaiah 49 opens with a description of where this servant came from. Isaiah sings about the conception and the incarnation of the servant of the Lord in the womb of his mother. She Herself was the servant of the Lord who said to the angel, let it be unto me according to your word. And then she went on to give birth to the God man and he came into the world through her. Her son was born and he is known as the servant of the Lord, the seed of the woman conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who was set apart for the Lord's service from his mother's womb. And so you see a connection between Mary and Jesus, like mother, like son, like mother, like son. Her son is the mystery of all mysteries, the secret of secrets kept hidden from angels and from demons and from men under the shadow of God's mighty hand until the fullness of time had come. 
And when the fullness of time came and it was proper and right for God to unveil, to pull back his hand and show the world his son, his son is revealed as God's final word to the world. The true shepherd who gathers God's scattered people from the ends of the earth. The servant who does God's will even when it cost him his life. The true son with whom God the Father is pleased and the faithful servant in whom God is glorified. Isaiah 49 points us to Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary. But he comes on mission. And what is the mission of this servant of the Lord? Recall that his mother Mary will call him Jesus. That is his name. He will be called Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. And according to the song in Isaiah 49, he will not only save his people from the tribes of Israel from their sins... But he is also going to save peoples from every tribe and nation and language throughout the world. Why? Because as the father said to the son, it is too light and easy a thing for you to save one group of people. I'm sending you with a heavier, weightier burden of saving the whole world. This is in the song. And this is a far more gracious and glorious thing than anyone in heaven or on earth or under the earth has ever imagined or conceived. The servant of the Lord is the savior of the world. He is called the redeemer. And throughout the book of Isaiah, the word redeemer appears multiple times. In fact, it appears more times in the book of Isaiah than in any other book in the Bible. And if you calculated all the uses of Redeemer throughout the Bible, it's almost more than that. Isaiah the prophet is fixated, focused on the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. The Redeemer who paid our ransom to release us from prison. The Redeemer sent out to the world to save the world. The Redeemer given to the world to gather the world to himself. The Redeemer who is the light of the world for the life of the world. He comes to help those who hate him. He comes to deliver those who despise him. He comes to rescue those who reject him because he loves those who left him. He is a man On a mission with a message. He is a man on a mission with a message. And his message is not for Israel alone. It's not for our tribe alone. It's not for our denomination alone. It is for the world. The message that he brings is for the life of the world. And you see this towards the end of this song. That his message comes out with light and life. He is a light for the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The gospel is not for Israel alone. The gospel is for all the nations of the world around Israel, including our nation. The message of this Redeemer is simple. Come out of darkness and walk in the light of the Lord. Come out of darkness and walk in the light of the Lord. Throughout the gospel of Isaiah, the Redeemer proclaims this message or one like it in various ways. 
Those walking in darkness have seen a great light, and he shall call them from darkness to light. Those dwelling in the dust of death shall be born again in the dew of life. The Redeemer says, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. The Redeemer does not forsake those he loves, and he loves the world. And so he's making things level and easier for them to come. All of these promises in the Gospel of Isaiah point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So much so that John the Apostle picks up on this theme in the Gospel of John. And he begins to talk about the light and the life of Christ. He's not looking forward to the time when the Christ will come. He is speaking to the time in which the Christ came. And the Spirit says through him that in the Redeemer, in Christ, was light and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it or overcome it or comprehended it. The true light that has come into the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what John wants us to know is that when God took on flesh and Jesus came into the world, it was an act of love on Jesus' part motivated by the love of the Father. And they work in union to bring about the love of God for the salvation of the world. This is why the scriptures say this is how God loved the world. He sent his only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And why does the world need saving? Well, we've seen throughout this series, as we've tracked along with the story, we've seen that human beings have made a wreck of things. It needs saving because it is broken and cursed and dilapidated by sin. Because the people, not just the place dwell in dust and darkness of a war zone. We have been wrecking shop from the beginning. And the world is covered in darkness. The world is covered in the dust of death. And so Jesus comes, God in the flesh, to shine light into the darkness, to lead his people from darkness to light. John 3 tells us that whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so to be very clear here, it is not the coming of Christ into the world. It is not the coming of the Redeemer and light to the nations that brings about condemnation. He came into a world that was already condemned and ruined by sin. He simply shines light on the condition and situation of the world to say, look at this mess. Look at this destruction. Look at the condemnation all around you. You don't have to live in that anymore. You don't have to stay in that dust and darkness. You can come out to light. You can come to a new place. You can come away from death into life. And so those who believe in him are not condemned. They are delivered. They are saved. But whoever does not believe in him remains in their condemned condition. 
when the light and life of the world comes, he sets before us blessing and curses, death and life. And what are we called to do? Choose this day which way you will go. Choose this day whom you will serve. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, the trouble is not that just that there's darkness around us, but the trouble is that so many people around us love the darkness. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want to change. They don't want anyone to show them where they've been wronged. And this is what Jesus is saying. You've got to come into the light. You've got to risk being exposed. You've got to risk having your weaknesses shown. You've got to risk that vulnerability. Why? And notice the shift in emphasis here. So that it may be clearly seen that whatever's been done in you has been carried out by God. Why would anyone come from darkness to light? Because the work of grace in their life draws them out of darkness into the light. Jesus said when he came into the world, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the light of life is not a thing that Jesus gives you. It's union with him. He's giving you himself. As you walk in union with him, united to him by grace through faith, you have the light of life, which is to say you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus says, I've come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That is where it begins. That first spark of faith you have was in the darkness. But you don't remain there. You come out of darkness into light. And why do you do it? Because believing in Christ is transformative. It changes your life. It changes your life. Jesus says, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. There's something about putting your trust in Christ and turning away from your sin that transforms you into his image and likeness so that you are conformed to be like him. You become a son of light and no longer a son of the darkness. Well, Isaiah tells us in his song that the servant of the Lord actually felt at various points that perhaps his work was in vain. Perhaps his labor of love was wasted or his efforts did not bring about the result he hoped for. They might have even been rendered null and void. And you can see in Jesus' own life some of the moments where he struggles with this sort of thing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when his soul is sorrowful to the point of death and he's laid out in the darkness, sweating drops of blood, weeping tears, crying out to God, Praying that the cup will pass from him. Praying that he will not have to endure the humiliations of the cross. Praying that God might perhaps find a different way. Ultimately says, not my will, but your will be done. 
Or think about the moment on Calvary. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, what is happening here? Perhaps it was in that moment that the words of Isaiah 49 ring true. That he felt that perhaps his, wef- his efforts were in vain. And then the song tells us that the father spoke to his son. You see it at the heart of Isaiah 49. The father speaking to his son in his time of crisis, in his day of crucifixion, when the whole world has rejected and despised him and everyone has abandoned and turned away from him. There is one voice that breaks through the darkness. There's one voice that breaks through the despair, and it is the voice of the father to his son. Can't you hear him? Son. Son. Son, in the time of favor, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. And on the other side of all of this, on the other side of this blood, sweat, and tears, on the other side of this death and darkness, you, my son, are going to say to the prisoners, come out, and to say to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Stop hiding. Come into the light. These are the words spoken by the Father to the Son that he gave for the life of the world. Words that he spoke to give him comfort that his loud cries and prayers were actually heard. And to give him courage that he was not abandoned and forsaken, but loved and well-pleasing. And to give him confidence that his sacrifice and service was not done in vain. But if his labor of love was not done in vain, for what was it done? What did it accomplish? And what is its value and worth? And the answer to that would simply be, it's indescribable. It's immeasurable. It's incalculable. Why? Because what the Redeemer accomplished in his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection is truly unimaginable and unfathomable, whether by angels or demons or men. For he accomplished far more than just taking away our sins. And that's not to minimize the massive feat of taking away our sins. But it's to say that he has done far more, exceedingly, abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. He's gone above and beyond what we thought he might do. And what he's done is he takes those whose sins he has taken away to a place that he has prepared for them. And that place is the paradise of a new cosmos the new heavens, and the new earth. You see it, don't you? It's a place where there is no serpent because 
the serpent's head has been crushed to oblivion. A place where there is no curse of sin and death because it's shattered and now supplanted by the blessing of life and all that is true, good, and beautiful. It's a paradise where there is no danger or toil or snare and there are no needs. There are no needs, whether felt or, or perceived. There are no needs. Why? For he who has pity and mercy on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Behold, they shall come from afar, from the north and from the west. They're going to come from all over the place. Because salvation has gone to the ends of the earth and the one who was sent as the light of the nations. And who are these people? Where do they come from? And how do they get to take a place in the paradise of God? You know who they are. Just look around the room and you'll see some of them. And don't forget to look at yourself. Because they are folks just like you who have passed through the hard times of life east of Eden, struggling to get by, fighting thorns and thistles, suffering sickness, grieving death, enduring countless trials and tests of life, stumbling towards ecstasy, failing and failing and failing again. They fought against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they've got calloused hands and scarred hearts and tear-stained cheeks and weary souls to prove it. They've been through it. And they don't look like much. They don't look like people that deserve to be in the paradise of God. They're disheveled and haggard. They're not well put together. They're unkempt when they show up. But as they make their way in, they wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, mercy, sins of the world has mercy on them. These are those who have died in the body and yet live in the Spirit. And they come into the paradise of God. They come before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shelters them with his presence. He protects them with his presence. He takes care of them with his presence. They hunger no more. They thirst no more. The sun does not strike them nor any scorching heat. And why? Why? Because the Lamb of God in the center of the throne is their shepherd. And he guides them to springs of living water. And God wipes away every tear from their eyes. Every single tear from your eyes. Why? Because in the paradise of the Redeemer, there is no room. There is no rhyme or reason for tears anymore. And he doesn't wipe away the tears to shame you, to make you feel bad for crying. Not all tears are an evil, but there's no place for them in this place. 
And as he wipes away the tears from your eyes to get them off of your cheeks, it's a reminder to you that he loves you. Welcome home. You made it from the ends of the earth. You belong here. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to feel sorrow or despair anymore. You don't have to struggle anymore. It's all over. You're in a safe place now. This is the love of God for you. And the Redeemer, who is the resurrection of the life, can be heard singing over you. Singing over you. Giving you his irreversible and irrevocable blessings. And can you hear the song of the Redeemer? Arise, shine, your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness covers the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light. Why? Because the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning and sorrow shall be put to an end. This is why God sent his son into the world. This is why he gave the redeemer for the sins of the world. This is why the Lamb of God laid down his life for you. To put an end to the curse of sin and death once and for all. And how shall we respond to this song of the Redeemer? Verse 13 tells us, sing for joy. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? Because the Lord has comforted his people and he has compassion on the afflicted. The Lord has comforted his people and he has compassion on the afflicted. The Lord has comforted his people and he has compassion on the afflicted. All too often, people have the idea that God draws near to condemn. That Jesus just comes to criticize. And that is a false gospel of the serpent. The true gospel says no. He has not come to condemn. He has come to console. He has come to show compassion. He has come to comfort his people in the midst of their sorrows and afflictions. That is the good news of Jesus Christ that Isaiah was singing about. Whoever believes in this Redeemer shall not perish but have eternal life. And can I say to you that if you believe that Jesus Christ is your Redeemer, your light and your life then you may go on your way rejoicing and go on your way singing the song of the servant 
just like the man from Ethiopia. There's no other way to cross the desert. There's no better way to get through the wasteland than to sing the song of the servant, ser- servant the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God and the light of glory shining in your life that gives you comfort, that gives you hope, that gives you compassion. This is God's love for you in Jesus Christ. He has come into the world as the light and the life of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.